0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan LeBell at St. Joseph's University, and today I welcome Dr. Sharice burden stelly assistant professor of Africana Studies and Political Science, and the 2020-2021 Visiting Scholar with the Race and Capitalism Project and Department of Political Science at the University of Chicago. She's here to discuss her new book, W.E.B. Du Bois: A Life in American History, part of the Black History Lives or Black History Lives series published by ABC Clio Press in 2019. Dr. Burton Stelly was a guest on the podcast back in June to discuss her contribution to the terrific Black Political Thought anthology published by Cambridge in 2020. And after reading her chapter on race and racism, I found myself needing to read more of, of, her, of her work. Um, Dr. Bernstelli's work is at the intersection of critical theory, Africana studies, political theory, and political economy. And her analysis of Du Bois's uh, political and methodological contributions reflect these deep and broad scholarly traditions. Um, in this book, she's arguing that her study of Du Bois's application of ideology, epistemology, and theory to practical action, you know, elucidates a roadmap of, of struggle against a myriad of forms of uh, exploitation, and and really demonstrates the sort of enduring features of of his praxis, and it one that provides lessons for our contemporary understanding and, and challenging of imperialism, racism, capitalism, um, etc. Uh, this book was so hard for me to put down, and I am delighted uh, that uh, Dr. Bernsteinelli is joining me today on the podcast. Welcome, Charisse.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So this book uh, is, is, is sort of a collaboration of sorts because you're revising uh, a 20, uh, 2009 book um, by, by Gerald Horn, a biography of Du Bois, but, but you're doing it with a particular focus on black radicalism And you're also providing a very different set of tools for students and non-specialists. So I was wondering if we could just start by talking about what it was like to do this revision and what some of your aims were for the book. And some people are going to be assigning it to students. So maybe also talk about how these new additions do make it more accessible for people who are not as familiar with with Du Bois or Black radicalism.
0: Yeah, so... We can kind of think about W.B. Du Bois' A Life in American History as like, you know, one of those film remakes, right, um, of Du Bois's biography. So he sort of had a particular narrative. And then what happened was um, the press approached him to reissue his biography with some extensive revisions for this new um, Black History Live series. And so he emailed me and asked if I was interested in doing it. Not least because at that time I was um I was on a Du Bois fellowship at um with the UMass Amherst um Du Bois library and was just and had written about Du Bois pretty extensively in my dissertation. And so um of course I accepted and so initially I was just um brought on to do like the new material, which is um the new chronology the sidebars, which I'll talk about in a second, and then the last chapter, which is why uh, W.E.B. Du Bois matters, as well as pick out and do the sort of brief introductions for excerpts from primary documents. Um, but as I was reading through the text, I was kind of like, um, I think there's a way to sort of reimagine this narrative as a sort of genealogy or genealogies of Du Bois's radicalism in different contexts. And so that is to say that radicalism is sort of a situated concept. And so for example, the conservation of the, of the races can be understood as a radical intervention in 1897, even as it's talking about race as a fact, but it's talking about race as a social fact as opposed to a biological fact, the latter of which was the sort of reigning epi, um, episteme at the time with respect to ethnology. And so all of that to say, um, Gerald gave me the latitude to go in and just sort of revise, refashion, um, add and subtract as I saw fit to sort of shape this into less of a ecumenical or straightforward narration of Du Bois' life and one that really emphasized the the sort of radical moves he was making over the span of his life. So that is that was a sort of writing process. And of course, um, you know, I would send each. Um, chapter to Gerald, and he will look it over and and, um, say this is fine, basically, or this this pass is muster. (laughs) That's what he would say. So in terms of being a teaching text, the sidebars really aid in that. And so essentially, what I wanted to do with those was pick events that students may not have heard of but that were sort of interesting facts, not only in American history, but in Black history and African diaspora history more broadly. So for example, we have a sidebar, which is just sort of like a pullout box that has an ex- a brief explanation. So we did one on like August 1st, um, also known as Emancipation Day, which is something that's celebrated, especially in the the Anglophone African diaspora, because this is when you know the British ostensibly Ended slavery and then later on ended the uh, apprenticeship system. And so, and by extension, later on, we now celebrate something called Black August, which is, which was started in um, the prison system here in the United States and is a time to reflect on sort of Black radicalism, on freeing Black political prisoners and on Black liberation more broadly. Um, In terms of the chronology, There was a chronology in the original text, but essentially um, what both the chronology in that text and in our current text do is emphasize the sort of conventional dates like 1903, the publication of Souls of Black Folk, but also dates that other people who are not as invested in Du Bois' radicalism um, might ignore. So for example, we talk about um, in 1926, he declared his support for Bolshevism after having visited the Soviet Union. Um, But then, but I also added some other dates that were not in the previous text. So, for example, uh, in 1932, Du Bois offered um, the tech the course Karl Marx and the Negro when he was at Atlanta University, and this is the sort of first course of its kind to be taught um, in U.S. colleges and universities. Um, And then I also updated some of the entries for um, for the on the chronology. So, for example, for the 1917-1918 entry you know we mentioned I mentioned not only that he he did the closed rank the controversial closed ranks articles but also that this was hotly contested and that 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 piece proved to be a deviation from his broader anti-war um radical peace uh politics so that's the chronology and in terms of the excerpts so we picked Um, pieces that were in the public domain. So those that were published before 1923, I believe at the time was the public domain. Um, And so what we did, or I just wrote sort of brief introductions for those documents, but then most of these documents are things that people know that Du Bois wrote, but they emphasize various aspects of sort of how he's thinking counter hegemonically, even very um, early on in the 20th century. So, for example, we have an excerpt from his book on uh, John Brown. So those are some of the additions that I made. And, of course, the the, the biggest addition was that last chapter, Why W.E.B. Du Bois Matters. And um, essentially, I mean, the title says it all. Essentially, the, <laughs> the chapter is about why it yeah. is that W.E.B. Du Bois remains relevant. And I really focused on the sort of interrelationship between ethics, epistemology, and politics. That's always how I frame just political and social facts. Um, And I talk about his various sort of ideological developments and shifts over time and the ways that um, these are not necessarily contradictions or hypocrisy, but rather these are ways in which he's really trying to intently grapple or intentionally grapple with um, changes that are happening um, in real time with respect to sort of race and class and um, other sort of social problems.
1: No, and before we move to the really that that essay is 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 phenomenal and uh, it it is uh, it's what I want to emphasize in our discussion today. But but before we go there, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, it, this is an amazingly accessible book for students. There's no doubt. But, but I also want to underline that, that the kind of things that are in these sidebars are, are not rudimentary at all. And in fact, uh, since the, the death of Mr. George Floyd, we've, we've seen these kinds of articles, in a sense, trying to educate uh, the American citizenry. And so in a lot of ways, these are sidebars that are not just essential for students, but for even really people who consider themselves to be educated, uh, you know, uh, advanced readers. Uh, I, I think they're terrific. They're really well done. They balance this sort of introduction with also some, some real depth and nuance uh, and, I, and I also wanted to underline something that you, Six, said about what you were trying to do and just say how much I thought you succeeded. It, you know, you're trying to contextualize his ideas in the moment that he's writing them and point out the moments in which he is truly radical in a way that we might miss because of everything that has happened in between when he is writing this. And also he has this incredibly long life and you do this unbelievable job in the book of not just contextualizing his ideas in the decades that they're in but also in these decades of this man's life which almost spans a century. I mean it's it is so well done. This is such a beautiful biography and I I I just can't thank you enough for the the way um you bring in that sort of uh, contextualization that helped me a lot as a reader. Um, you've already done a little bit of this when you're talking about the chronology, but I think that a lot of people, you know, sort of have the most rudimentary understanding of Du Bois, and you know, they they know that you know he and Booker T. Washington disagreed, or they read the excerpt about the veil. Um, but I'm wondering we, we can't obviously cover the whole biography, and we want to focus on the, the the political theory part. But I'm wondering, even though we can't cover it all, are there a few things that you that 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 you would love listeners to to know about his his life that perhaps they they're not so familiar with?
0: Yeah, so. One is that, you know, Du Bois ran for the New York seat of the Senate in 1950 um, under the American Labor Party, which was like the New York um, chapter of the Progressive Party. And he really emphasized peace, civil rights and civil liberties and essentially socialism. And he knew, he didn't run because he thought he was going to win, but he ran because at that moment, people were being disciplined by the state that is a U.S. government um, and criminalized for speaking about peace and speaking about socialism or anything that contravened um, dominant U.S. politics. And so he ran because he would have relative latitude as a political candidate to speak about these issues that he held deeply. And so I don't know if people know that about him, but... um, he ran for the Senate. Um, another interesting thing about Du Bois is his relationship with Shirley Graham Du Bois. So the more salacious aspect of that is that they had um, a, a very long affair <laughs> for like over two decades and finally married when his first wife, um, uh, Nina Du Bois passed away. But the it's a, I call their relationship and a number of other sort of relationships of this fashion, um, mutual comradeship, because Shirley Graham Du Bois really helped to cultivate and develop Du Bois' radicalism. So some argue, some like John Henry Clark argue that it was her that sort of surrounded him with the Reds and ultimately sort of moved him toward the Communist Party. But um, even beyond that, she was very, very instrumental in his defense, for example, when he was indicted in 1951. Um, and just was, you know, one of his sort of closest companions, both uh, intellectual, political, as well as romantic. Um, and early on in their relationship, he did a lot to help her in her career. So she was a playwright and he did a lot to sort of get her place publicity in the crisis. He, um, lent her money sometimes like, (laughs) so he did, he did a lot to sort of help her career and help her get access to particular types of circles. So it's just, I think it's a really interesting and, um, beautiful relationship, you know, notwithstanding the fact that it happened under, you know, I guess, uh, Less than reputable circumstances, but I think that that's another interesting fact about um, Du Bois' life. And then finally, finally, well, but, go ahead. Let, let me let me interrupt you, uh, Cherise, for just a second. Is
1: is that is that the relationship where he sits down with her and they kind of create a marital contract together? Is is that?
0: Yes. So there, yeah. One of my favorite documents that I've ever found it was actually in her papers and there's no response from her in his papers but essentially he said you know he was trying to say like I this is not a relationship in which I as the man will take care of you as the woman like this is not a marriage of parasites is the term that he uses he's saying that they need to share and share alike, because he doesn't he is not a wealthy man right and also because he had a marriage like that, that was a traditional sort of patriarchal bourgeois marriage. And he was very, very unhappy. He wanted their marriage to be a marriage of equals. And um, so I don't know if that's what you're referring to as a contract, but he sort of laid out the terms of their marriage with respect to how he wanted it to be egalitarian and how he wanted it to be a relationship of mutual support. Um, And sort of they're, they're both sort of paying their way through the relationship and helping each other through the relationship which is just is very prog- this is the 1950s right like it's very progressive for that moment No
1: thanks that's what I was remembering slightly incorrectly um but <laughs>
0: but I interrupted you
1: you 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 were going to share something else from his biography um as as well and I I apologize I I derailed you there
0: yeah. So just the third thing I was going to mention is the talented tiff concept. So this is something I'm sure everybody is very familiar with, but sometimes it is, I think it's misrecognized uh, as a sort of elitist domineering concept. But I think that what people miss is Du Bois, what Du Bois was advocating was a race leadership rooted in responsibility to the race Um to, to the, 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 masses of the race, so to speak, that essentially those who had the access wherewithal and relative talent, um, to, to take on the responsibility of uplifting the race socially and economically and politically had to do so. So these degrees and this education wasn't for self aggrandizement and it wasn't for to live a life of, um, you know, excess and leisure, but rather it was a way to use for the, the sort of best and most developed to use those tools for the community. And ultimately, because <laughs> the talented tip, as John Henry Clark says, the, dal- the talented tip never had no talent, that is, they had no dedication to the masses. Du Bois came obviously to, to turn away from this concept of the talented tip and to really look to the masses as the leaders of the race. But even, even with this sort of vanguardist understanding of progress, I think um, he still understood that privilege, that sort of privilege, privilege is not for the individual, but rather for the group as a whole. And so even this, there's some sort of progressive elements to this idea of the talented tent. So they're just three things I find interesting about Du Bois. <laughs> no, and, and.
1: I, as I said, I just couldn't put it down. I was on vacation. I had every reason to put it down, and I and I think the <laughs> what, what's so good about no offense. I think what's so good about the book is that you know the, the 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 theory that is in the end chapter is threaded through, but we're getting this really nuanced understanding of his development, and you know it includes. It includes the familiar and the unfamiliar, and you have so much documentation of, you know, his schedule, which I found both inspirational and completely intimidating. Um, One thing that you wrote that really struck me was that you said that Du Bois took advantage of the best political and intellectual tools of a given epoch. And I was wondering, uh, that, that just said so much to me about the whole book. And I was wondering if you could share with listeners uh, what you mean by that. And also just a couple of examples since they don't have the book yet at hand.
0: Yeah. So what I mean by that is essentially that Du Bois was not dogmatic. Right. And so there's, you know, something that I say that, you know, when ideology congeals into dogma, it's no longer useful. And I think that Du Bois is very much a model of that whereby, he was u- ut- utilizing all sorts of um, ideological tools that could uh, potentially address the moment. So I talked a little bit earlier, for example, about ethnology and conservation of the races as an articulation of, of ethnological discourses. That is to say, uh, a sort of a, a, a racial a, a discourse whereby race has a particular type of essence. That 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 racial categories and racial characteristics actually do have sort of Real life meaning. Um, but again, he was using ethnology to assert that Black people indeed did have culture and civilization and something unique to contribute to the brotherhood of races, whereby people like, um, you know, people who are arguing for quote unquote social Darwinism were arguing that not only that Black people were backward and had no history and culture, but also there are these ideas that Black people would essentially die out because they were so inferior. And so in that way, he's using ethnology not to both critique the the sort of dominant way in which ethnology is understood, but also as a way to think about race solidarity and to think about race unity and to think about how it is that Blackness is not a negative category or just some void, but rather something out of which beauty and good and truth, uh, as well as other sort of metaphysical contributions um, come. So that's one example. Um, another example is Pan-Africanism. So Du Bois is present at the first Pan-African conference, which is in 1900, Um And so pan African, and then, of course, he's uh, involved in all the subsequent Pan-African Congresses, which are 1919, 1921, 1923, 1927, and 1945, Um, 1945 being one of the most significant ones because it's a more radicalized approach that's actually led by people from the African continent itself who are in various stages of struggling for independence.
1: Um, sure, Charisse. I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you for just a second because we have so many listeners and they study so many different subfields in political science and uh, and other disciplines as well. And so I'm gonna actually ask you to just define Pan Africanism for the wider audience because I think that the, the book really speaks to Du Bois as this father of Pan Africanism as a really important uh, um, and an important a context for understanding Pan-Africanism. So w- would you mind just kind of, to, you know, giving giving the more basic definition so we can, everyone can catch up?
0: I would just say in its basic form, it's sort of like this idea of what, I think Michael Dawson calls it linked fate, that the fate of Black people, of African descendants in the diaspora is bound up in the fate of Africans on the continent itself. And that there is a shared, not only cultural reality, some might say a, a sort of cosmo cosmological or metaphysical reality or a quote unquote African personality. But beyond that, that there's a shared history um emanating from slavery and coloniality through which black people wherever they are located have a vested interest in each other's uplift and flourishing. Um so that that would be a sort of general definition of Pan-Africanism. And so the Pan-African Congresses are emblematic of this, for example, because you have, in, in the early iterations, basically more elite people, people who can afford to sort of travel and to convene in this way, coming together to petition, for example, the League of Nations about gradual independence and gradual self-determination and sovereignty for the African continent, but also um, making... Uh, resolutions against Jim Crow. So there's resolutions against, for example, the US occupation of Haiti, um, you know, attacks on Liberia. So there's a way in which people from throughout the African diaspora are coming together and thinking together about what it means for African people as a whole to work together for uh, political, social, and economic freedom. And Du Bois is considered to be the father of this, I think, because of his involvement in all of the Pan-African Congresses, but also because of the ways in which he's intervening or, you know, intervening in commenting on organizing committees and organizations for all sorts of things that are happening throughout the diaspora, whether it be, um, you know, when he goes to Liberia in 1924 in order to sort of, (sighs) he's going on behalf of the state but essentially he's trying to broker a a, a modicum of autonomy for for Liberia vis-a-vis Britain and France who are essentially trying to to colonize Liberia. And so he is trying to petition the US government to sort of protect um, Liberia's sovereignty, although of course that's fraught, not least because of, um, you know, Firestone. Anyway, that's, it's kind of a long story. So but all of that to say, so he, you know, he's, he's intervening in Liberia. He's speaking vehemently against the invasion of Ethiopia in 1935 um, by Italy, uh, Italian fascists. Um, he is at the forefront of the anti-apartheid struggle, along with the Council on African Affairs in like the 1940s, right? And so they're really at the forefront of the struggle against apartheid that really takes Amazing. off in the, the late 1970s and 1980s. And so this is why he Du Bois really has a vested interest in Africa. And so a, a very underrated, but very important text that Du Bois writes is The World in Africa, where he's talking about, you know, the, the importance of African independence to the sort of realization of a project of, 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 international freedom um but even before that right and he has the African roots of war which we have an excerpt of, of that in the text and it's one of my favorite texts of Du Bois where he talks about how the actual struggle in World War I had so much to do with the struggle the struggle for resources in Africa right that the struggle between um, Germany and Great Britain for example is for these African colonies and for the continued expropriation of not only the African continent, but also other, um, you know, the South Seas and other areas. And that, I think, really conveys the way for him, Africa is at the center. Africa is is his his locus of enunciation, but also, um, so uh, uh, Tony Montero is somebody who writes about Africa as a sort of base of, of Du Bois' epistemic understanding. Um, And other people write about this, too. But I think that that to make a short story incredibly long, (laughs) that's the way that uh, Pan-Africanism was a sort of political and intellectual as well as a political tool for Du Bois over time to um, to challenge imperialism and colonialism and even, you know, Jim Crow racism in the United States.
1: So you have all sorts of names for Du Bois throughout the text. And they're actually really helpful because they, they put this kind of theoretical lens on these different parts of his life, which is sort of, it's unbelievable. You kind of can't make up all of the things that he did and the, and the efficacy in all of those things. One of the things you call him is a militant liberal. And I'm wondering uh, if you can share, you know, why is this such an essential framework for understanding Du Bois as only as one of the lenses? And we'll get to the others as well. But but what is militant liberalism? What do you mean by the term? And, and what does it tell us about Du Bois?
0: Yeah, I can't remember if militant liberalism, I think I either got that from the Black Radical Democrat. Biography by Manning Marable, which was about the boys, or from Adolf Reeves' um, text on the boys. But anyway, what I mean by the term militant liberalism is essentially it's a question: Is the boys' challenge to the United States to fulfill its own liberal rhetoric and promise vis-a-vis black people? And so that means enfranchisement, that means liberty, that means the ability of each community community to uplift itself. And so the other part of militant liberalism I think that's important is that insofar as like dominant liberalism is sort of about the individual as such, militant liberalism, especially with respect to Black militant liberals, um, has to do with the race as a function of the individual and the individual as a, a functionary of the race. And so An idea like racial uplift can be very, very conservative, but it also can be emblematic of of militant liberalism, not least because it articulates the capacity to be able to progress and develop in a time when black people were understood to be simply backward and inferior and thus not worthy of any resources because, you know, they're incapable of of progressing anyway. Um, and so militant liberalism for Du Bois relates to this this debate with Booker T. Washington, not necessarily the sort of our reductive understanding of liberal arts versus um, industrial education training, because I think that that was a false binary, but rather the ways in which Du Bois and people like William Monroe Trotter were challenging the appointment of the uh, of um, Booker T. Washington as a leader from without, right? That he was appointed by white folks to be the leader of Black people and not only that the ways in which he shut down the space for intellectual debate so part of militant liberalism is that this idea of convening together albeit the quote unquote best of the race right convening together and discussing um problems that relate to negro people but somebody like Booker T Washington who owned several newspapers right was shut down political discourse to impose his own ideas and would get people fired from their jobs if they challenged them and do all sorts of things that are very, very repressive and anti-democratic. And so I think that Du Bois' liberalism was about really realizing this idea of democracy and this idea of freedom um, beyond the limita- the limitations it hit when it came to applying it to Black people.
1: No, and I found the discussion of Booker T. Washington and the way in, in, in small ways, he was able to exert power over people so that they wouldn't speak um, by denying them access to particular jobs, or pressuring others to deny them that access. Plus, the combination of controlling press were really compelling, and it was it was done in a kind of way that I'd, I'd never seen before. So, really, thank you for that. Um, another term that you use that's somewhat related. Um, is you describe Du Bois as a militant anti-sexist. And you say that he's 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 not just this uh he's this personally, and you've talked a little bit about him writing this letter to uh his to his his to be wife and partner and wanting it to be a partnership, but also professionally. And you know, throughout the book, you sort of describe him as somebody who was all was was thinking. Was thinking intersectionally before the word existed because he was really understanding race and class and gender together. And I, I wondered if you'd say a little bit about his anti sexism and put it into the context um, uh, uh, of his time, which you do so beautifully in the book.
0: Yeah, I like I don't use the term intersectionally um, just personally, but I do think that he's a forerunner for what comes to be articulated by people like Louise Thompson Patterson and Claudia Jones as um, triple oppression. But what I will say, and so I, I I use anti-sexist as opposed to feminist, because, you know, of course, this is a point of contention. You got people like, you know, Hazel Carby and um, maybe Joy James and others who talk about, well, Joy James, um, anyway. So you have people who talk about Du Bois as sort of, not a feminist which i think is probably is true right but i think that <laughs> you can be anti-sexist and not be a feminist and so um you know people will point to his clash with Ida b wells as a as emblematic of his sexism or his the you know way he thought that women were subordinate but but i just don't think that that necessarily bears out historically um and so for example Kelly Miller, who is um, a dean at Howard University, writes about, he writes this piece about why women should not vote, right? Why women should not have the right to vote. And boys writes back to, uh, in the crisis, to this position by Kelly Miller saying, to the extent that women are human, to the extent that women have ideas and women are affected by the social and political realities, they absolutely should have the right to vote. And that's just sort of one example of, how, to the extent that women are half of Black women, right, are half of the Black race, surely they should have some skin in the game. And this also has to do with the fact that they do have a unique experience of racism, not least through um, sexual violence and through, um, you know, issues of rape and through the unique experiences of Black women, whereby they more so than any other group of women work outside the home. And so issues of labor affect them in ways that require they be empowered if if the race is to be uplifted um, as a whole. He was supportive of, of Black women's education. He was constantly writing these letters of recommendation and facilitating sort of ways for women to get jobs in, let us say, the NAACP, the National Urban League, um, so Louise Thompson, Patter- or Louise Thompson, who later becomes Louise Thompson Patterson, is is an example of this. Um, and he, as early as Darkwater, is writing about sort of the unique gifts of Black women and the ways in which Black women, both sort of culturally and spiritually, but also materially, have contributed to the development of, of American society. If you look at his life over time, I think that you can really see his commitment to the development uh, and uplift of, of women generally, but Black women particularly, and his, will, his willingness to collaborate with them. So another example of this, one of my favorite examples is that when he was writing back and forth with Abram Harris, planning the um, Second Amenia Conference in 1934, Harris has in this letter, he, he has a list of people and there not, are not very many women on it. And so he says, you know this, you know this better than I do. So, you know, you can identify women of talent and merit better than I can, which is an acknowledgement that Du Bois is sort of intentional about, um, you know, Black women's contribution in ways that other men of his time aren't necessarily. So that is his anti-sexism to me.
1: No, and I think that you do do a really remarkable job. This is not a worshipful... Biography. Um, this is not hagiography. This is something else. It's really good critical biography, and you're you're willing to say when he falls short of some of his own ideals, and also when his ideals, from our judgment, might fall short. But you, I think, really helpfully put them in the context of the moment. Compare him with some of the other people who he's arguing with. Um, you mentioned black women and labor. And one of the emphases throughout the book is is black Marxism, um, and how you know his understanding of reconstruction is really shaped by a very nuanced view of class and imperialism. Um, and I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about this, this mix that he that he brings to understanding this this history that is more complex than we might think
0: yeah so i think that for so this term of this term black marxism is hotly contested for a number of reasons so um you know People. Some people. Push so on two
1: them. for two on intersectionality and black Marxism.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well. So. So. <laughs> no. The thing about about black. I mean, I use the term black Marxism, right? But on the one hand, there's this idea. The term. One reason why the term is contested is because of Cedric Robinson's the name of Cedric Robinson's book, Black Marxism, that is actually, uh, one might argue an anti-Marxist book, or at least a very deep critique of. Marxism in ways that argue that Black people's radicalism actually is not a, is, is when they move beyond that Marxism, right? So there's one critique of Black Marxism in that way. Another critique is that Black Marxists are Marxists. So why have the sort of the modifier Black in front of it? Um, But I would, but to the extent that um, Black Marxism names a, form of Marxism or the, the harnessing of a Marxian science of history to the reality that Blackness and anti-Blackness are not epiphenomenal, I think that Black Marxism is a thing. And, and in that regard, I would say Du Bois was a Black Marxist. And so to me, with his approach to Reconstruction, what, what makes this a sort of Black Marxist approach is that, number one, he's pointing to capitalism as a world system right he's not just talking about cap the capitalist mode of production or capitalist relations within the united states but but rather the ways in which cotton and slavery as a whole was a sort of a world historical phenomenon and thus one there are a lot of sort of international forces that are shaping what's happening in the civil war and reconstruction the second aspect is that even as he's articulating, or the second aspect is just that he articulates Black people as workers. So in a very orthodox um, reading of, a very orthodox Marxist understanding, the enslaved would not be considered to be workers because they don't have juridical freedom. Um, And because slavery is supposed to be um, a form of primitive accumulation. But for Du Bois, he, he sees them as workers and also sees the sort of civil war as a general strike. Um, And so that is another innovation that is a function of his understanding of race and class as mutually constitutive and not race as epiphenomenal. Um, And he also and then within black Marxism, there's also a critique of the failure of white workers and white unionism to to show solidarity with black people and there's a sort of skepticism about the ability of like black and white to unite and fight. That's really a, a function of, of of white supremacy. And so beyond black reconstruction, I would say that sort of skepticism about the ability of white workers to overcome their racism is manifested in you know, his move toward this idea of a Black separate cooperative economy in the mid-1930s because of the way, because of the ways in which he sees that white supremacy is becoming more entrenched, not less so even in the labor movement. And so Black people have to sort of organize on their own. And so even this idea of a Black cooperative economy with sort of consumer cooperatives, producer cooperatives, and, um, you know, co- the collectivization of resources is to me another function of a sort of Black Marxism that with that is a sort of class, a a class analysis and a critique of capitalism, but always with the structural and material realities of Black people at the center.
1: Um, you You've mentioned organization a couple of times, and also these really thick and diverse <laughs> relationships uh, and affiliations that he builds over time. And one of the themes in the book is about his affiliations, both famous and overlook. and and you you see this as part of his efficacy. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more, because it, it it plays such a big role in the concluding chapter of the book.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the story of Du Bois is a story of an investment in organization and institution building. If you look at the Niagara movement, and then the NAACP, and then you know later on in life, he is in... The Council on African Affairs. He helps to form the Peace Information Center. Um, and then there's many organizations in between. Like Du Bois is always convening conferences, attending conferences, founding organizations, participating in organizations, serving on the, you know, the executive committees of organizations. And so he this shows the sort of collaborative and collective nature of not only sort of Du Bois' politics. And activism, but also what allows him to be who he is. And so we like we have this great man, you know, approach to history where we like to think of only somebody singular genius and them as an individual. But Du Bois is one who was always in communion and in community and in conflict. But conflict, you know, is another form of like sociality. Right, because Black people are a heterogeneous bunch. We're not going to agree on everything, um, contrary to our, uh, you know, the the presidential nominee, presumptive presidential nominee, um, Joe Biden. We're not all the same. Um, And so, Du Bois. So one example is that okay, when Du Bois gets pushed out of the NAACP for the second time in 1944 because of his support for Henry Wallace, as well as because Eleanor Roosevelt was very unhappy with the fact that he, after she sort of buried um, an appeal to the world and the United Nations, he tried to go through back channels to get get the the appeal brought before the General Assembly. Um, So when he was being pushed out, people like Doxie Wilkerson and Herbert Apthecker um, brought him into the Council on African Affairs. And so because of these sort of leftist connections that he had been forging over time when he was pushed out of the NAACP, he had a network of folks who are willing to shepherd him along and help him along um, to sort of land and to be a part of um, a progressive organization. So that is just one example of how the networks of people with which Du Bois, in which Du Bois was involved, as well as as sort of the different ways he participated in or helped various organizations, allowed him to navigate increasing repression toward the toward the sort of end of his life. So, from the basically mid nineteen forties onward, of course, there's a, a earlier iteration of that repression, but certainly as the Cold War was setting in, because he had generally been collective and collaborative in his orientation, there were a lot of people, black uh, men and women, black and white, who helped him to weather that sort of deluge of repression that would characterize his life toward the end. So, um, and I think that the other side to that is like thinking about the boys helps to illuminate other figures. So for example, um, this is, so this just comes out, for example, when I was doing my research at, uh, for for the book, David Levering lewis has all of these interviews with, with people that he was using to write his sort of, you know, his Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Du Bois. But you just see all of these people with whom Du Bois worked, with wh- who he helped, who he agreed with, who he disagreed with, that had something to say about, um, how the bois shaped helped to shape their own ideas and, and um as well how they helped to to shape sort of how he navigated
1: no there is so much to say about about Du bois and um and I think one of the virtues of the book is that is that you keep us us focused um, one of the one of the elements that really interested me throughout. Was the way you showed how he's fighting alongside and against these 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 other movements that seem like they would be helpful, but they're not. So there's there's white populists that have interests that really align with black farmers, and uh, there's progressives who are working also on certain kinds of social issues that impact all Americans, but they're only looking at white Americans. Um, and, and so I, I was wondering if you could, it, first of all, do you agree <laughs> with what I just said? I'm not sure it's right. It's I've only read the book once. You wrote the book. and Because as I was reading it, I just thought, wow, this just seems so so descriptive of some of our politics today and so helpful to to actually have in front of me to understand today's politics.
0: Yeah, I think that what you're saying is right and it's sort of like this but for logic, right? That the the pop the um the populist movement or the progressive party would be genuinely populist and genuinely genuinely progressive but for their white supremacy. And so this is, and so this is always the wall, with within the context of the United States, this is always the the wall that or the test for progressive movement. So as early as 1909, Du Bois is writing this critique of the Socialist Party, you know, and their inability to to grapple um, faithfully and intentionally with the with the Negro question, right? And so I think the problem becomes we can have this vision of democracy. We can have this, uh, you know, this vision of redistribution. But when it comes to applying that vision to Black people, there seems to always be a struggle. There seems to always be an equivocation um, because of this deeply rooted or constitutive reality of of anti-Blackness and of, you know even the most well meaning and the most sort of um you know the best of the liberals still have this idea of um you know we we believe we believe the narratives about black people right that black people well they are criminals like surely they're criminals because they're incarcerated the most right Or, you know, you know, surely black people are kind of lazy. Look at the levels of unemployment. Or, you know, surely, you know, black people are culturally deprived or culturally backward. I mean, you know, they eat all that fast food. Or, you know, what you know, they this their single parent family. So so we tend to believe these narratives about black people that are indeed and in fact a function of the structures of domination that we need to challenge. And so even Black people believe this about other Black people, right? So even Du Bois, right, in 1899, as he's writing The Philadelphia Negro, he is very understanding of the structural realities that characterize sort of the Black degradation that he sees in Philadelphia. But at the same time, he also has to admonish Black people, especially poor Black people, you know, to be clean and to be frugal and to, you know, be, you know, have chastity and all of these other ideas um, that he, he moves away from in some ways throughout his life. but in some ways he still has particular types of, um, a particular paternalistic attitude towards, you know, working class and ordinary Black people. So um, to circle, I mean to bring it back to
1: your and, original and, question. I'm sorry. I was just gonna. I was just gonna push in because I found that part of the book really interesting. This toggling between his keen recognition of structural racism, especially in the Philadelphia Negro, and his his insistence that white people are responsible for the dire situation of black citizens in Philadelphia. It's not them. It's white people and what they've set up. But then he also moves back and forth to this, you know, we must behave in this way. And and for me, sometimes it was hard to understand, Sharice, whether, and of course you're not him, so maybe you can't answer this question, but whether, how much of that for him was strategy, look, we have to appear a certain way, like o- almost the way the NAACP sought out their plaintiffs in their uh desegregation lawsuits, like looking for people strategically who looked a particular way were so so unquestionable or whether he he really believes in some of of what he's saying about about how people have to behave and how they have to have this this you know outward cleanliness and other things that he that he says
0: I think it's both ends, so I think that the moral the moral suasion um I think moral suasion is real that if we can just perform this perfect citizenship, white people um, will ease up <laughs> on the repression. I think that that is real. We still see this. I mean, I think that we still see this today. I, but I do think, you know, again, black people are a heterogeneous bunch. And I think class really plays into this. And I do think that there there can be a way in which black elites or the sort of the black managerial class really does despise or disdain ordinary black people there is a fundamental belief that culturally and sort of um, attitudinally um, the black masses are backward and so I think that there's a there's a, a both and question and in reality I think that even as we critique, the structures of domination, and even as we realize that capitalist exploitation and anti-Blackness and imperialism and patriarchy and warmongering are really the foundations of a lot of the antagonisms we have in society, there is is just a particular responsibility that we as Black people have to ourselves, right? This is the whole idea of self-determination, that there is a, a, a level of respect and of um self love that we owe to ourselves, and that is our own responsibility now, what <laughs> how that manifests and what those specifications are are a, a different question. But in terms of the a, initial question that you asked about about sort of white populist or progressive movements and their um orientation toward black people and what that means for today. I think that this is where this is the argument about putting really paying attention to how things like for example COVID-19 affect black people. Um and if it is that we can have not only empathy, you know, not only sort of man that's terrible attitudes but actually work to eradicate those um those structural realities like, you know, um, environmental racism, like, um, neo, you know, resegregation, if we can, to, can challenge those structures that result in black and brown people having a a disproportionate, um, a disproportionate susceptibility to not only get COVID-19, but to die from it, then attacking those structures will help society as a whole. And you must start there because those are the people that tend to be left out or stated differently. Those are the people whose demise we rationalize. And so I think that this, this, always the Black question, at least in the conscious United States, or, you know, always the race question becomes the linchpin for if a particular program will truly be effective that is to say can you do can you see this program applying to the liberation or self-determination of black people and if not then it runs the risk of then it will ultimately reproduce the economic structures rooted in racial hierarchy that persist
1: aren't those questions that you just posed and the sort of principled uh, uh, hopes that you're putting out aren't they in a sense a combination of of what Du Bois was asking for? like isn't this part of militant liberalism that demands more than lip service or tokenism and and attends to? Economics and has an eye to um, Marxism, e- even if Joe Biden doesn't want to use those words. Um, and and so I guess I'm we're reading this in in uh, in August of 2020 and having this conversation. And I and I I don't know. I'm wondering how you think about Du Bois in this particular moment.
0: I I think. Uh, Du Bois offers us very little by way of Joe Biden. I mean, I think, so there's this piece I was reading this morning by Du Bois that he wrote in um, about the election of 1956, where he said, you know, essentially, he's not going to (laughs) vote that, you know, because, um, you know, he had spent a lot of his adult life voting for either a third party that had no chance or or the lesser of um two evils but essentially he made he has this statement that you know we are not in a moment and this is in 1956 um, that we're not in a moment of the lesser two of two evils but rather that there is one evil that has two names right that that is to say the two-party system is just is simply one evil and so I think the, the, what he was saying is that if it is that anybody even pushes for a third party at that moment, they're going to be branded a communist, right? They're liable to be overthrown uh, or they're, they're liable to be thrown in jail for being accused of, of overthrowing the system by force or violence. They're going to be red baited if they ask for anything that is aligned with the Communist Party platform, which is, you know, social medicine, limitations on private property getting business out of government, um, having government subsidies on housing, um, aid and education. So I bring that up to say Du Bois, I think, especially later on in his life, had a particular vision of what human flourishing looked like and that warmongering, imperialism, colonialism, <laughs> racism, are all antithetical to the realization of human flourishing, that these things cannot coexist. And I think that we are still very much in that moment. And so this, I think, accounts for a lot of us who were not, you know, turning cartwheels when um, Biden selected uh, Kamala Harris as his running mate, right? That just because she is you know, a Black woman, but also, you know, a woman of, you know, South Asian descent does not, is not, does not mean that that is progressive, right? That those who are put in the position to uphold empire and to continue to force the majority of the population to negotiate the terms of its immiseration, that is not progress irrespective of the body that, (laughs) the body that's articulating those, those ideals. And so I think that, um, what Du Bois shows us for today is that one must organize on the ground and be involved in these alternative sites of politics on the one hand, um, but also for sort of international networks and uh, continue to be deeply sort of engaged with the current moment. Not only what's happening in the United States, but also what's happening abroad in order to think about to to expand the the reality of what's possible. Because if we only look at what's possible in the United States, it's very, very freedom, the idea of freedom and democracy is very anemic. So that's what I learned from Du Bois. And I think that the other, you know, as I talk about in the last chapter, the other thing that he shows us is that we have a a vast toolkit to be able to get at um what the problem is and therefore to think through what a solution could be
1: wow that is um a stunning way to end a podcast sharice um and i'm not going to say anything on top of it but uh i uh, I so appreciate you coming to talk about this book. I know you've got a lot of other things that you're working on. What, what's on the front burner right now? What's the next project?
0: Yeah, so I'm currently working on um, a manuscript that doesn't have a title anymore um, because you know my advisor my dissertation advisor um, I still he's still my dissertation advisor he's my I finished my dissertation long ago he was like that title's not good so anyway but the book is about basically the conjuncture of of capitalism um, capitalism anti-blackness and and anti-communism in the first half of the 20th century and so I'm really trying to think about how anti-communism is a mode of governance of racial capitalism that it's not just a sort of geopolitical strategy but it's actually an imperative of maintaining and preserving uh, racial capitalism between 1917 and 1954 and i'm taking you know i'm looking at particular cases that um, are emblematic of this reality so um that's a current. That's a book manuscript I'm working on. Um, I am also working to have uh, with international publishers to have um, un- uh, unsung ba- valiant, which is Dorothy Hunton's um, biography of Alpheus Hunton, um, republished because the the she self published the first volume, and for those of us who can get our hands on it, they're very sort of fragile, and so uh, we're going to republish. You know his his. Biography, uh, which I think is really important, and I'll write the introduction for that. Um, along with Jody Dean, I am working on a collection of Black Communist women's writings, um, basically between sort of 1919 and 1956. So, um, just you know, trying to bring back some of the Black leftist and radical writings. Uh, back into like our sort of political imaginary and into the intellectual commons so that we have those resources again to to think about um, what's possible and what's to come.
1: I look forward to all of it. And when you finish that book, you will have to come back to new books in political science and, and talk about it. And I'm gonna be really sorry that you stop in the 50s because it seems to me that from everything that you've said today, red baiting and shutting things down, shutting, shutting options down, criticizing capitalism, that that is still a really, as you say earlier, a, a really active tool. It's still, it's still with us. That's the way you can put an end to certain conversations. Well, um, I hope you have a wonderful, uh, is it a year or two years at the University of Chicago coming up?
0: Yeah, so, so one year officially, but uh, we'll see what comes out of it.
1: Okay. Well, that's one of my old stomping grounds. So uh, please enjoy Hyde Park and uh, all of its excellence. And uh, thanks so much for joining me today on New Books and Political Science.
0: Thank you for having me on. It's been wonderful. <laughs>